Well, as Dave said, we are in Ecclesiastes 12. I want to encourage you to turn there with me. And let's stand and read the first eight verses together as we recognize this is the Lord's holy and inspired word. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds do not return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Let's pray. Lord, as we read through this sober-minded passage from Solomon and then read his conclusion together, Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear his words, to take them seriously and not to respond in despair, but to respond in joy. For that is, I believe, what we are supposed to do as we read these words of delight as Solomon describes them a little bit later. And so we look forward to seeing how you will minister to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, according to an ancient Greek myth, there was once a riddle asked of the citizens of Thebes by the Sphinx. And the riddle goes like this, what is four-footed becomes two-footed and then three-footed. And many of you have heard that riddle before, maybe just didn't know where it came from. The answer is a man. He is four-footed in that he crawls on his hands and his feet as a baby, two-footed when he walks in the prime of his life, and then three-footed as he walks with the assistance of a cane. So there's a sense in which we go, hmm. You know, that's a clever riddle, but no one laughs out loud at that because, first, it's not overly laugh-worthy, but second, and more importantly, the, the riddle, along with its answer, speaks of a truth that's been true ever since Adam and Eve first sinned and the Lord said that dust you are and to dust you will return. See, a, a human being does begin as a crawling baby and walks about the face of the earth on two feet for a while and then starts to diminish, has to employ maybe a walking stick or finally many men and women are typically carted about in chairs with wheels, right? Before they're placed upon their deathbeds. And that can, that can become depressing to people as they think about it. But it's, it's this reality, this diminishing in old age that motivates Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12 to encourage young men and women to seek God. So let's look at the last verses, actually, of chapter 11, specifically verses 9 and 10, and see what leads into this chapter. Solomon says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, 
and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart and put away evil from your flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. And that comment continues right into verse 1 of chapter 12, which reads, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. It's clear that this appeal is to young people to think carefully about their Creator, not merely to remember that He's there. The thought is, recall His presence daily. Live in a relationship with Him. Look to discover the greatness and glories of God while you are young. And we'll come back to that thought in just a moment, but first I want to read the verses that follow, because these define what Solomon has already suggested is the reason for thinking about and relating to God while we are young. Namely, he says, difficult days are coming. And those difficult days are described in verses 2 to 8 in this vivid and beautiful imagery that describes the aging process. Let's let's look at this closely. In verse 2, while the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds return after the rain. This is referring to that fading of the mental powers we all face as we grow older. When you're young, life seems to stretch endlessly before you, but as we live day by day, life seems to speed by suddenly more and more rapidly. And in the end, it's so brief. And someone once said, just as the time that your face starts to clear up, your mind begins to go. And that's how brief life seems to be. And those mental faculties are described in terms of light. The mind with its power of reasoning, the memory of of imagination, all of that starts to dim like the fading of the light of the sun. And that reasoning power of the brain, perhaps the greatest gift God has given us, begins to lose its ability and that memory starts to fade. An older comedian once joked, there are three things that indicate the onset of old age. The first is losing memory, and I can't remember the other two. Well, that's what this verse is describing. And it's it's a common joke because it's so prevalent amongst the aged. So, the clouds returning after the rain. This is a reference to this this kind of second childhood of senility that comes on in old age. The sun shines brightly for a time between storms, but the clouds set in again. And then Solomon speaks of the day when the keepers of the house tremble. And perhaps you have already guessed what that would be, the keepers of the house. Those are the the hands by which we defend ourselves when we're attacked or by which we steady ourselves. They are so useful to maintaining the body and maintaining the balance to begin to shake and tremble as old age comes on. The strong men are the legs. They start to bow down. It's a reference to these strongest parts of the body that also begin to to shake and, and, and diminish. As you know, many of uh, your parents or your grandparents or even you are starting to take shorter steps 
sometimes having difficulty walking. And then Solomon speaks of the grinders. Now that you know the metaphors are all about old age, what are the grinders? Well, there are the, the teeth. The grinders cease because they are few. That needs no interpretation for those who are losing teeth. Mealtimes prolong because it takes so long to get bites of food down, right, and chewed with those few remaining grinders. And then those that look through the windows, what would that be? That would be the eyesight. The eyes look through the windows, grow dim. So we start to, to have a loss of our eyesight as cataracts form, as various eye problems develop. Almost all of us certainly lose the ability to read close up without glasses. My solution is to buy bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger monitors each time. And then my, you've seen the monitors on my desk. You're going, wow, it's like a big screen television. Well, it's so that I can see it. The doors are shut in the streets. Is a vivid picture of what happens as the teeth fall out, the doors of the face, which are the lips, they fall in and one begins to mouth everything. And when that happens, the doors to the street that were once open frequently in speech are more frequently shut. And consequently, the sound of grinding is low. It's a logical connection with those shut doors since lost teeth no longer make chewing sounds. Of course, Ecclesiastes is in a day before dentures and, and so on. And, and so they had to gum their food and the result was silent eating. And then one rises up at the sound of a bird. I've noticed in the mornings that as time passes, I'm increasingly sensitive to morning sounds. When I was young, I could sleep through anything. But now the sound of Hope and Caleb moving around in the living room or the birds chirping outside, those awaken me and I hear it, it just becomes even more that case. And yet, at the same time, Solomon says, all the daughters of music are brought low. So you may, you may wake up at the slightest thing and yet you're having trouble hearing other things, right? And it's a frustration, then there is a word on the increasing fears brought on by older age. They're afraid of heights and of terrors in the way. I was at a memorial service on Friday, and right after the service, as we were exiting the church, we waited for an older woman. There were was only like this, three steps down, and yet that was a huge obstacle, as it sometimes is in our in our older years, and we had to wait as she was set into one of those electric chairs that are on the railings and lowered down those three steps. Her footing was unsure, right? My grandfather, who's still alive in his 90s, never leaves his house anymore due to the difficulty of getting around. And then that says next, the almond tree blossoms. This is a reference to the white flowers of the almond tree. And it's therefore the reference to the white flowers of the hair that is turned white with age. And then I never understood until recent years what was meant by the grasshopper drags itself along. But having often awakened in the morning and finding myself stiff, I understand this more. I still have a lot of years ahead of me, Lord willing, but I can imagine that as the decades pass, and the body grows stiffer so that the final years are 
marked by sometimes feeble steps, which parallel that grasshopper dragging itself along. And then finally, desire fails, a reference, of course, to physical desire. And it may be a great comfort to some of you that that's the last on the list. So I want to acknowledge the fact that modern technology has helped solve many of these problems. Wigs can be bought as the hair falls out or dentures when the teeth fall out. And we can have cataract surgeries and glasses can be fit for eye problems and artificial legs and arms and hands and wheelchairs. And those are all great devices. But Solomon's point is important. God has appointed that we all die physically. And in frankness and openness, he writes that man goes to his eternal home through this valley, through the grave. And it's a fitting end to Solomon's examination of what Dave was calling that vapor or that vanity of earthly existence. He says, so remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. You know what that is now, right? That's a metaphor for death. The end of life, the silver cord is loose, the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the well. Seek God before you die, but more importantly, seek God in your youth. Why? We have to understand the answer to that simple question today, or we will miss the point of this entire book. So, young men and women especially, please hear Solomon. Why does he emphasize seeking God in your youth? Is he just saying that we better enjoy God right now while we can because we're going to become like those stereotypical grumpy old men and women portrayed in sitcoms and movies? So we better enjoy him now? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not. Ecclesiastes has been teaching us to live life shaped by the awareness of death and the vanity of trying to pursue the world's values. So being realistic about our death will invigorate our present life. As one author writes, having one foot in the grave is the way to plant the other foot on the path of life. If you go back to that chapter 11 verse 9 and read it again, let that word rejoice jump out at you from the page. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. This isn't just an encouragement. This is a command. Rejoice, O young man. Rejoice, young woman. Let your heart cheer you. That phrase doesn't just mean put on a happy face. It means let right desires, right attitudes bring you joy, cheer you up in the midst of realizing the vanity of life. To walk in the ways of the heart and the sight of the eyes does not mean to just pursue fleshly desires. Solomon has spent way too much time in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs for us to draw that conclusion. In chapter 11, verse 10, he reminds us we'll be held to account for what we do. So that's a sobering warning to pursue the right things, even as he says, walk in the ways of your heart. But I want you to not miss the fact that God commands you and me to rejoice, to be cheerful, to be joyful. Maybe it will help to hear Moses in Deuteronomy 28, 47. He's, 
They're on the verge of entering the promised land in that chapter. And Moses tells the people of Israel that the curses of the covenant will come upon them. And you might expect the reason for them coming upon them to to then be if you don't obey all these things. And certainly there was that part. But listen to what he says. The curses of the covenant will come upon you if you do not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. We're told in earlier chapters in Ecclesiastes to delight in simple things. But that was not meant to imply that God doles out just just a few really basic delights. You know, he, he lets you get married and he gives you a job. But in the meantime, the world is tempting you with a thousand other things that are more, uh, more seemingly enjoy, uh, that you would enjoy more. But, but you only get these little things and you have to, to settle with that from God. That's not what God does. Instead, he has blessed us with abundance. And he commands us to rejoice in those things with this heart of gratitude. Author Douglas Jones argues that Christian cultures have failed throughout church history, not primarily because of insufficient theological education or poor doctrine or inadequate evangelism or weak leadership, but he says because of a lack of joy. He writes that the more joyful we are, the more like God we are. He says the broad Christian community has many, many books on joy, but few of them appear to grasp its weight. They tend to talk rather stoically about how we feel pleasure in the midst of dysfunctional relationships, but joy is not a marginal psychological trait. It is the center of the universe, he says. The center of the universe. And then he concludes, how is it that for the last many centuries, Christendom can write creeds, can write theological tomes that don't tell us this simple point? Why haven't we had giant church councils on the nature of joy or different schools of thought that wrestle over the intricacies of joy? And I agree with those questions and thoughts. I think that is why Moses says that the curses of God come upon the people if they do not rejoice in the abundance of God. And the reason is this, that to not live gladly, joyfully, and drink deeply from God's abundant goodness is sin. It's sin because it's a denial of who God is and what he has provided. It's a reflection of Adam and Eve's first sin who came to believe that God was withholding something important from them. And so Solomon tells the young man and the young woman, rejoice. And now that I've said that quote where joy is the center of the universe, look at this command in in Ecclesiastes 11. Is that much more important? Rejoice. Fight for joy. Be cheered by wisdom and right desires and simple things. And if that's true, if if that really is true for young men and young women, Wouldn't that be true for old men and old women also? Absolutely. That suggests then that grumpy old men and women are sinning because they're not rejoicing in God. 
And here comes the important part. Solomon tells the young man and young woman to rejoice in their youth because it takes a lifetime to develop the kind of perspective that helps us through the challenging years of life. We do not want to become men and women who are filled with self-pity and resignation. Instead, we are summoned by God to live in the light of who He is and what He has given us. As we grow older, we go through some of these realizations that Solomon reveals in Ecclesiastes. They, they become personal experiences to us. We, we have such unrealistic and in, in, in many ways expectations of life, idealism, overabundant confidence in our abilities and expectations of what we're going to accomplish. And then we start realizing one by one the reality of what Solomon reveals and exposes in the book of Ecclesiastes that we can't be in control, that things we accumulate don't go with us to the grave, that we all die, that we diminish in our capacity later in life. But instead of becoming cynical and tired, instead of despairing, we must work starting in our youth to live each day in the light of eternity. So that when old age comes, when the difficult days arrive, we are still joyful. You see, nothing good ever comes out of idleness or selfishness. The fruit of an idle, self-centered life is never joy and peace. Happiness comes out of pursuing the good of others and remembering the blessings of God and establishing that as a lifelong pattern. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. I want you to hear that today. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. And if you aren't thinking about it now, what's going to happen is it's going to spring upon you suddenly and you're going to go, what happened? I wasn't prepared. In our early years, we are building the house in which we will live when we are old. Will your house of old age be a prison? Or will it be a palace? That's what I think Solomon is challenging us to ask here. All old age is not beautiful. There are many older people who are not happy. And that is why there are so many sitcoms and movies about grumpy old men and women. There are men and women who have built prisons over dark dungeons filled with regret and self-absorbed pursuits and unmet expectations and disappointing relationships. And it is possible to live in a way that makes those difficult years totally tragic. But it's also possible to live in a way to make your older years beautiful. And young men and women, it starts now. It really does start now. Listen to what an author, this is, now this is taking an author from 150 years ago, what he wrote. He says, everyone carries in himself the sources of his own happiness or wretchedness. Circumstances have really very little to do with our inner experiences. It matters 
little in the determination of one's degree of enjoyment, whether he lives in a cottage or a palace. It is self, after all, that in largest measure gives color to the sky and the tone to the music we hear. A happy heart sees rainbows and brilliance everywhere, even in dark clouds, and hears sweet strains of song even amidst the loudest wailings of storm. And a sad heart, unhappy and discontented, sees spots in the sun, specks in the rarest fruits, and something with which to find faults in the most perfect of God's works. So it comes about that this whole question must be settled from within. The fountains rise in the heart. The old man, like the snail, carries his house on his back. He may change neighbors, or homes, or scenes, or companions, but he cannot get away from himself in his own past. Sinful years put thorns in the pillow on which the head of old age rests. Lives of evil store away bitter fountains from which the old man has to drink. And he concludes, We are every day laying up the food on which we must feed in the closing years, hanging up pictures about the walls of our hearts that we will look at when we sit in the shadows. How important it is that we live pure and holy lives. Now, as we kind of reflect upon those things, and as we soberly take in and drink in that, this is where we come for the end of the matter. The end of the weather-beaten, sun-seared counsel of a man who tested life and asked all the important questions. What's the conclusion? Well, look at it there. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. He sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright, words of truth. Stop there for a moment. A lot of people do treat Ecclesiastes as a book of a jaded, cynical, and disappointed man, but that's not what verse 10 says. The Hebrew might better be translated as, because the preacher... Solomon sought to find delightful words. The word there is delightful. He ended up writing words of truth. These are truthful words. But they have the motive of bringing joy. That may not describe Ecclesiastes in your mind because as Solomon acknowledges, they're also painful words. That's what that next verse says. The words of the wise are like goads, sharpened sticks. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Further, my son, be admonished by these. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Listen to that one shepherd. We don't need to read 10,000 books. He has wisdom for us. And the wisdom can at times be like that sharpened stick that is meant to keep you on the path of life. It's, it's painful at times, and yet it brings a good result. And so we read, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And this is where the, the drumsticks start to, to beat on the drum, right? The drum roll comes up. Work through 12 chapters for this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. 
For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now he started Ecclesiastes with saying that everything under the sun is vanity. And that is true. Without putting God into the equation of life, everything is meaningless. But if there is God, and if he will bring everything into judgment, as we just read, listen to this, then everything matters. Everything good, everything evil, everything hidden, everything plainly visible, everything matters. Don't read that famous quote, which is always pulled out of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And think that that is the fitting description, summary of the book. Vanity of vanities is meant to set us up for this conclusion. That everything matters and is significant. Because there is a God in heaven who rules the world. There is a life to come after this life. And one day the dead will be raised and every person who has ever lived will stand before God for judgment. And there it will matter how you've used your time. Whether you wasted it on vain things or in the internal kingdom. It will matter what you did with your bodies, what you did with your money. Whether you obeyed your mother and father will matter. What you did for a two-year-old will matter. What you said about someone else's performance will matter. What you said about yourself in, in a boast or the selfless sacrifice that you gave or the hurtful gossip, it will all matter. And what matters most of all is what you do with Jesus Christ. Paul quotes Solomon's words in Romans 2.16 when he writes, On that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the living God who sits on the throne says, I know that life is challenging. You live in a world that is under the curse. You live in a world that I've set into place and you weren't meant to be the center of it. You can't control it. I make all things beautiful in their time. I have a purpose, but that purpose sometimes stretches way beyond your life or your children's lives or your grandchildren's lives. And I know that it can be troubling because of sin. But I am making all things new. And even in when your body begins to shut down, it is a preparation of you for eternity so that you don't become so anchored, so tied to the things of this life that you aren't ready for home and heaven. There is the refreshing thought that God restores and refreshes everything. Not everyone believes that, of course. In fact, 2 Peter 3, 4 says that some people deny the coming judgment, the final salvation, because they think all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And what they say, say sounds a lot like Solomon in Ecclesiastes when he says there's nothing new under the sun. But while we acknowledge that truth in sober-mindedness, and we don't hold on too tightly to the things under the sun, we remember that there is one who is above the sun, who is the sun, S-O-N, 
And one day our restless ears and our roving eyes will be fully and finally satisfied when we see Jesus Christ and hear the sound of his glorious worship. For what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of a man has imagined, this is what God has prepared for those who love him. And all of that brings us back to the question Solomon asked at the very beginning of the book. What does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? Jesus asks in Matthew 16, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? And now we know the answer. The conclusion of the matter. Only Christ can make any life, young or old, beautiful or joyful. Only he can cure our restless fever for self-significance and and give quiet to our souls. To have a peaceful and blessed end of life, we must live it now in Christ. Don't put it off. Live now for him. Hear what Solomon has told us all these chapters. The more earth's joys fail, especially at old age, the nearer and more satisfying the comforts come. If we have trained ourselves to look in the right place all the days of our youth. May that inspire especially you young men and women today to think seriously about what your delight is, what drives your life, and what you're living for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes, this book in which we learn that everything matters because you know all things, you will hold all things to account, and we will one day come before you, and therefore we must fear God, we must obey your commands, but we must rejoice at the same time as one of the great commands you've given us. Help us to think of these things, to enjoy the simplicity of what you've provided for us and not to get caught up and entrenched in the world. I pray for our young men and our young women especially, Lord, that you would give them minds and hearts that are focused on you and your ways. And Lord, prepare them that they may be Older men and older women one day of such saintly character and joy, even as we read about with John Owen, that the gospel goes out by their example. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.